Hey, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen. The show is sponsored by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or you're a meeting planner, check out SpeakerMatch.com. Sometimes we do special flashback episodes of the Big Time Talker podcast. This week we're doing one of those because of the new movie Spinning Gold. Now, if you're not familiar with Spinning Gold, it's the behind-the-scenes story of Casablanca Records, a very flamboyant label in the 1970s that brought people like Kiss, Donna Summer, the Village People, and a whole lot more, these really splashy, over-the-top acts into the mainstream spotlight. And we talked with Larry Harris, who was the number two guy at that label, behind his cousin Neil Bogart, when Larry released his book, And Party Every Day. Now, the conversation took place 12 years ago, but it's neat to dip back and listen to it again because Larry is uh, portrayed in this film. Now, Larry passed away, unfortunately, in 2017. He's no longer with us, but this conversation lives on. And you'll have to forgive me for a couple of things in the conversation. Uh, One, the audio quality is not great. The technology back in the day was telephone-based, and so it will not sound super crisp and clear, but you'll be able to make out everything, I think. Uh, And the other thing I'd I'd like you to forgive me for in this is that I fanboyed a little bit uh, because of Larry's early involvement with one of my favorite bands, Kiss. Larry and his cousin Neil were in the room the night Kiss was signed when they played at a very tiny audition studio just for the two of those guys. And uh, so we talk a lot about Kiss But Casablanca uh, helped break all sorts of acts. Parliament Funkadelic, Cher was there. Uh, They had huge comedy albums from Robin Williams and Rodney Dangerfield. As a matter of fact, before we do the conversation with Larry, here's the trailer for this new movie in theaters now, all about Casablanca Records called Spinning Gold. Check it out. We were in the business of making dreams come true. Sold over 200 million records. Came the soundtrack of your lives. And how do you expect me to tell you how all that really happened? This is Casablanca Records, the biggest independent label anyone had ever seen. And the artists, they were family. Yes, the Isley Brothers, Gladys Knight, Parliament, Bill Withers, Donna Summer. They legally changed my name. Everything is hotter in summer. And we knew what Casablanca could be. We went $7 million in debt. You're broke. The whole town knows it. What the hell do you really want? You didn't come over here just to beat up Bruce. I didn't. We were waging an all-out war against all the majors, all at once. You gotta be out your mind. These labels fight dirty. Motown actually put a hit on us? You are gonna need to make a phone call. You just called the Italian mob to tell the black mob not to kill us. You had a better idea? (laughs) Midnight plane to Houston. My people from Georgia, they would never take a plane to Houston. We're gonna place one final bet. On who? On us. Lift off. Let's go. You look right about that. I'll leave you by me. 
did you sign us? You had to know how hard this is going to be. Because two kids from Queens had dreams about being the next gods of rock. That is who you are. What happens next? You do. A step back in time to the 1970s. That's the new movie, Spinning Gold. All about Casablanca Records. Their parties and other stimulant-enhanced antics are part of music industry legend and lore. And the label really sort of rose and fell with disco craze, uh, often identified with that genre of music because... Uh, of them shepherding people like the Village People and Donna Summer to superstar status. But they were pretty wide-ranging. They had Kiss, who we talk about a lot in the interview this week with Larry Harris, but also Cher and Parliament Funkadelic. Bill Withers was part of that label. Um, Larry Harris was the number two man at the company behind his cousin, Neil Bogart, uh, who had what Mr. Harris called a sky's-the-limit approach to promoting their acts. And that's what Larry Harris was best known for at Casablanca Records. He did all the publicity, the promotion, the advertising, the tour support. And uh, Larry, in his book, End Party Every Day, talks about how they flew everybody first class. It was always limos. They always wanted to stand out as the most fun record label ever. And I think they accomplished that. Uh, The candle burned very brightly and didn't burn very long. In 1979, Larry Harris exited Casablanca and the label came to an end shortly thereafter. They were purchased by Polygram Records who were uh, very corporate and also German-owned. Neil Bogart and Larry Harris were both Jewish and so there was certainly a clash of cultures there uh, when Polygram took over the legendary Casablanca Records. Again, the conversation you're about to hear was done via telephone. It's all about Larry's 2009 book and Party Every Day, the inside story of Casablanca Records. Here's Larry Harris. How are you? You have written uh, what may be the quintessential story of 70s rock and roll and and music business uh, insider uh, naughtiness. Now, as you look back on it, does it feel like 30 years ago when all this happened to Casablanca Records? Um, interesting. Uh, no, uh, it, it, you know, it could have been five years ago. <laughs> although, although if I look in the mirror, it feels like 50 years ago. So. You tell some incredible stories in this book. And, and by the way, it's available now in bookstores everywhere from Backbeat Books. And if you'd like to find out more information, uh, look up Larry online as well for the website for End Party Every Day. You tell stories about uh, being there and seeing Kiss in a tiny rehearsal space, essentially auditioning for you and, and the label president, Neil Bogart. Uh, yeah, Neil and I uh, went to see them for the first time in uh, um, a tiny, really tiny studio, maybe a hell, I don't know, 20 people. Uh, and they didn't have any of their their stage slash, but they were wearing rudiment, rudimentary costumes and their makeup. And they did have a lot of speakers. Uh, actually, I I left there and I couldn't hear for like two days. I, I thought my ears were going to start bleeding. 
<laughs> and you talk about in the book uh, after you guys come to terms and and the band gets signed to Casablanca, you take them, you load up the entire band in a, in a borrowed car and go to to see a Who concert. Um, and they're very quiet on the way down, but then on the way back, it's a whole different story. Well, what happened was we we were still at Buddha Records. Neil and I worked at Buddha Records. Neil was the president, and um, we had signed Kiss, knowing we were going to start Casablanca in a few months. Uh, we had signed Kiss before we left Buddha, so I actually had a leased car that Buddha had given me to use while I worked there, and it was a, um, a Mercedes, a um, four-door Mercedes. And, um, yeah, I, I took the four guys, trying to make friends with them, since I knew I was going to be working with them, um, to go see the Who in Philadelphia. And because uh, uh, a good friend of mine was the promoter uh, in Philly, still is, a guy named Larry Maggot. And um, they, I tried to make conversation on the way up, and the only person that would talk at all, really, was Gene, and not that much. Uh, Paul was never a big talker anyway, <laughs> Hmm. And um, but by the time they saw the Who break their guitars and you know Keith Moon break his drums and the whole excitement uh, of, of the Who concert, um, on the way back they were a lot looser and uh, a lot more friendly. We're talking with uh, the author Larry Harris, who's a longtime music industry veteran and was one of the big cheeses at uh, the quintessential '70s record label Casablanca Records. The book is "And Party Every Day: The Inside Story." Casablanca Records from Backbeat Books. Um, not only Kiss, but uh, you guys were certainly in the forefront of the entire disco movement. And talk to us about uh, about that and and how that matched up with with the sensibilities of you, who were you were a native New York kid. I was a native New York kid, and I wasn't into disco. I was really into rock and roll. Um, in fact, we we in the beginning of Casablanca, we really didn't believe in disco. I mean, we believed in dance music. Uh, because the, that was going on, you know, in the 60s. Um, but uh, when it came to disco, yeah. But we had just left Warner Brothers Records, um, which we were with for the first six months, and we had uh, the only two acts we really had were Kiss uh, and uh, Parliament. And uh, they were both selling okay, I mean, no big deal, maybe 100,000 200,000 albums. Uh, but we were in bad financial straits, had no money to sign any bands. And uh, actually, my wife always yells at me when I talk about this, but I passed on Rush. Uh, <laughs> nice job, Larry. Uh, yeah, well, you can't win them all, but, you know, I couldn't get past Getty Lee's nose. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I already had one of the ugliest bands in the world, which was Kiss. I didn't need another one. There you go. Uh, so... Um, one day, a woman walked into our offices with uh, three pieces of product from a German producer, and one of those pieces of product was Donna Summer. And we made a deal with him. Uh, it cost us no money at all. We just gave him his own label in America, which I thought was a brilliant move by Neil. And um, we, you know, we came out with Donna's first record, Love to Love You, Baby, and nothing really happened. Um, and then out of the club's... Uh, well, what happened, well, there was a party at Neil's house one night, and we were all stoned. Couldn't happen today because we were playing Love to Love You, Baby, the, the album on, on the turntable. And somebody who was drunk or stoned, whatever, bumped into the turntable. The needle jumped back to the beginning of the record. And we realized that it was a better record if it was longer. 
So we made a longer version, or had Giorgio Moroda, who's the producer in Germany, make a longer version. And all of a sudden, it started selling out of the gay clubs out of Miami, and selling very strongly. So uh, we jumped on it and started bringing it to New York and Philadelphia and other markets. Uh, and it, it, that's how the, she started. Now, you also worked with, with the village people, and, and you mentioned that, that Donna Summer came from the, the primarily the gay clubs in, in Miami. In mainstream America, you guys did a phenomenal job of, of not making this very, as you look back in retrospect, flamboyantly gay band come across well to, you know, to moms and dads and kids everywhere. How did that happen? The village people um, were who they were, and we actually didn't know all that much about We signed them. They were already, the album was done, the artwork was done. The, I think the album was already out in France by the time we signed them. And we didn't know much about them because we had nothing to do with the band to speak of. We just dealt with the producer who did everything. I mean, the band didn't even play. The original Village People didn't even play on their own album. Uh, and then we eventually, you know, wound up finding out that they were lip-syncing to the album anyway when they were performing live. So, um, but there was no reason. We, we were amazed that people didn't understand what they were talking about. You had uh, Shades of Millie Vanilli way before the Millie Vanilli scandal, Then you say village people didn't even sing and play on their own album. No, we found out. We walked backstage at a concert they were giving the first time we saw them live. Uh, we happened to be in Miami at the time, and they were playing for a radio station gig, uh, WSA, uh, no, um, Y100 Miami. And uh, we walked backstage uh, a little after the show at, and we noticed that uh, there was a tape deck, a reel-to-reel tape phone in front of it, and wires leading to the speakers. And that's when we realized that they were lip-syncing. The story is all about Casablanca Records. It's and party every day. The author is Larry Harris, who was, uh, amongst other things, the chief radio promotions person on the rock side at that label. Um, Larry, when you, you look back on this, and, and you know you didn't pull any punches in, in talking about uh, the, the life of excess that, that everyone led who was involved with this label, or most everyone, I guess, um, could things have turned out differently and better if it had been cleaner? Oh no, I don't. I don't think the drugs had anything to do with success or failure. Um, uh, if anything, maybe they helped us be more successful. Uh, but it was the 70s. The bankers were doing drugs and lawyers were doing I mean, the judges. I, I knew a district attorney who was doing um, It was a different time frame in America. but Not that people don't do drugs today. Sure. But um, uh, I don't think that had anything to do with it. Uh, we were really successful for uh, a span of four or five years. Uh, with the disco stuff, Parliament was huge. Kiss, of course, was huge. We had Cher. We had a great comedy lineup. We had Robin Williams. We had Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, we were really selling a lot of records. Um, but Neil, being the main thrust of the company and the and the, the, the big owner and the president, uh, we also had movies. We had The Deep and Thank God It's Friday and Midnight Express that won an Academy Award. Um and Neil's whole object in life was to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he was going to keep investing the money in the company in order to do that. We were about, before the, everything fell apart, we were about to sign a major deal with McDonald's uh, to, for the first time to sell music uh, in Happy Meals. Um, 
and special, specially designed music for the Happy Meal. And uh, it, Neil was a gambler, and Neil's whole object was he was going to roll the dice, and he was going to win super big time, or he wasn't going to win at all. And, of course, we're talking about Neil Bogart, who was the, the president and, and head of the label, and, and you had a family connection there that actually got you into that uh, that role with, with Neil. Yeah, Neil was my second cousin once removed. So, uh, we had a saying at Casablanca, everything was relative. <laughs> Nepotism was a good thing, as I read in the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Would you go back and do anything differently as you look at it all now? Yeah, I wouldn't have come out with the four Kiss albums. Is that right, the solo albums? That's what killed the company. And, you know, with that, how might you have navigated that whole thing differently? The reality of the situation was we were approached that the band <clears throat> wasn't getting along and they were going to break up, and the only way to keep them together was to each of them have a solo album. Um, so we resigned ourselves to that fact. But because we promised we'd never ship less than a million albums on any Kiss album, Neil decided that we were going. If we had four solo albums, we had to ship a million on each of them, and um, didn't work. Not, not one of those albums sold, even to the Kiss fans. I mean, the biggest album of the four, out of which shocked us all, was Ace Frehley's album because he had a semi-hit with a song called New York Groove. Right. Uh, that I noticed they're using for a commercial for uh, some new TV show. And will you get a piece of that? Uh, no. <laughs> Which of the four Kiss albums, solo albums, did you like the best? I wasn't crazy about any of them. Uh, I, I thought Gene and Paul's were absolutely terrible. I kind of, since he had the hit with Beth, I kind of liked Peter's voice and started getting used to listening to him sing. But uh, I thought they were all terrible albums. And when Kiss then released their, you know, disco record, at that point you had been, uh, you were no longer with the label. Was that a good move or a bad move for that band? At the time, from what I understand, and again, you know, I had left, uh, they lost a lot of hardcore fans because they did that. But, you know, then again, it's 40 years later or so almost, and um, they're huge still. So, <laughs> uh, you know, they came back. That's Larry Harris, who unfortunately left us in 2017. After he left the record industry, he moved to the Seattle, Washington area, where he was the owner and operator of the Seattle Improv Comedy Club for several years. But in the music business, he had a huge hand in the success of Kiss, Donna Summer, The Village People, on and on and on. And he's portrayed in this new movie, Spinning Gold, running the label alongside his cousin, Neil Bogart. The movie, by the way, directed and produced by Neil's son and Larry's nephew, Timothy Scott Bogart. It's in theaters now. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this special flashback edition of the Big Time Talker podcast. We're brought to you by Speaker Match, and we have brand new episodes, brand new conversations every Tuesday. You can subscribe now at Apple iTunes, iHeartMedia, Wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, we're on all the platforms. And we thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, be sure to share it as well. Thanks again to my late great friend, Larry Harris, who, by the way, joined my company, Allen Media Strategies, and we worked together for several years prior to his passing in 2017. What a great guy. What a character. What a minch. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.